to episode 350 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and also by today's guest, Keith Dunlap. Keith is a writer, a fiction and poetry memoir, uh, also a poker player, of course, and a philosopher. Uh, Keith actually reached out to us. He is a uh, listener to the show and a subscriber to the Patreon. And um, he told us that he had a, a terminal cancer diagnosis, um, which, among other things, has because of the, uh, the chemotherapy that he's received, uh, he, as he put it, was isolating before it was cool to isolate. And uh, one of the things that he took up doing um, was playing poker, which, uh, you know, I think that he is not alone in terms of uh, being someone with a you know medical reason why um, they are, I don't know if homebound is quite the right term, but uh, isolated, I guess, uh, you know, where online poker is something that uh, he can, you know, do um, and uh, something that he can put his uh, direct his his active mind towards. Uh, I don't want to put too many words into his mouth because uh, you will get to hear the words from his mouth soon enough. Um, I will say this uh, emotionally is uh, kind of an intense episode at times. I think uh, all three of us at, at various times were um, sort of overcome. You know, we talk about some fairly heavy things. So you might consider uh, where and, and when you want to listen to this. This might not be the best uh, drive time listen of all of the episodes that we've done, uh, but that's up to you just to, to give you that heads up. I think it's um, it's it's a, you know, a good conversation, a moving conversation, um, and I hope that you will uh, benefit from listening to it. Uh, our strategy segment is also going to come from Keith, actually. As I said, uh, he is also a Patreon subscriber. So this is a question that he submitted to the Patreon. I figured uh, this would be an apropos time to answer it. Um, you, too, can become a Patreon subscriber for as little as $5 a month. You'll get a daily strategy segment from us. So you are not restricted to the uh, once not even quite every week uh, strategy segments that you get from the regular show, you can get a strategy segment daily at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Keith's question uh, is about a hand example from Play Optimal Poker, although I don't think you have to have read Play Optimal Poker to understand the question. Um, th this is a scenario, for those of you who do have the book, this is on page 99 from the Test Yourself section of the Reciprocal Ranges chapter. Uh, his, his question concerns a hand where uh, the, the button opens for a raise, the big blind calls, and the flop is king of spades, queen of spades, three of clubs. Uh, this is a cash game, 100 big blinds deep, so uh, we, we don't have antis or things like that to consider. Um, and in this hand, the uh, the question is uh, that the hero has 
pocket jacks. And uh, in the text, I say to check this flop. And uh, so king, queen, three, two-tone with pocket jacks. Uh, the, the text, I <laughs> say to check the flop. And uh, Keith's question was, um, my current understanding, open to amendment, is that king, queen, three, two-tone is a great flop for buttons range. Big blind doesn't have aces, kings, queens, ace, king, king, queen suited, might not even have king, queen off or king, jack suited. Uh, sure, big blind will have king, x, and queen, x, and some straight draw combos, ace, jack, ace, 10, queen, jack, etc. but that's still a pretty small percent of big blind's wide calling range. Flush draws are a push. Hero has range advantage and nut advantage, both nut sets, and more nut to pair. Jack, jack likely beats any under pair villain might have and blocks a bunch of the straight draw combos, as well as some of the significant stickier king, x, and queen, x. Why isn't this just a depolarized one-third pot bet? I can even see an argument for a polarized 0.6 pot bet to protect jacks, which also has a backdoor straight draw. I know there are anomalous flops which defy this depolarized 33% pot bet strategy, but I'm having trouble seeing this flop as one of them. What am I missing? Thanks. Uh, I found a previous solve which matches this scenario, and I see that uh, jacks is a majority check, although it can also bet 33% uh, pot 45% of the time when it doesn't have the flush suit. Is it that Jack-Jack just doesn't love a check raise, or that Jack-Jack has too much showdown value and here doesn't, uh, and here wants to preserve that value as long as possible? Um, yes, I would say it is. It is both of those things. Um, so, like one of the things that I want to emphasize here is, and I think you know, this is a concept that, um, that I think comes up fairly often. Like just because the flop is good for your range or sort of favorable for your range doesn't necessarily mean that you want to bet. Uh, it's even the case that when the just because the flop is good for your hand doesn't necessarily mean that you want to bet. Um, there, like I think it's it's more important to I don't know about more important, but also important to consider how much your particular hand actually benefits from betting. And when I say benefits from betting, I have in mind two things. One is how likely are you to win the pot if your bet gets called, and two is how much are you benefiting from the times that your opponent folds? In other words, how much does betting and causing your opponent to fold increase the likelihood of you winning the pot? And I think jacks on king, queen, three, two-tone is a great example of a hand that doesn't really benefit from either of those things. So if you bet and your opponent folds, um, as, as Keith kind of indicates, your opponent is not folding any hand better than jacks. A king or a queen is never folding to a single bet. Um, in addition, like some of the other hands that have pretty good equity against jacks, like ace-jack, ace-ten, jack-ten, spade draws, none of those hands are folding. So I don't think you're gaining very much from your opponent's folds. You're denying a little bit of equity. I mean, you can make uh, ace-five of diamonds fold. It's a hand that has three outs against you. You can make pocket sixes fold, which has two outs against you. You gain a little something from the folds. And you also are not doing very well when you bet and get called. Right? I mean, you're very likely to lose the pot because you can't really keep putting money in. Um, maybe you know, every once in a while you make a straight or whatever. But for the most part, there's just too much king x and queen x in your opponent's calling range. So not only are you losing the pot plus your bet, to the, a king or queen that calls you, but you should also be losing to the ace-jack, the ace-ten, the jack-ten, regardless of whether those hands get there. Because what's going to happen is you're going to bet the flop, your opponent is either going to raise or call. Um, if they raise, you're going to fold. If they don't raise, then 
you know, the turn is going to go check, check, and then they're going to bet the river. They should be betting the river, even if they have one of those draws and they miss. Um, and like you just should never be taking jacks to showdown after you bet and get called. Your opponent really should. I mean, unless unless your hand is no good, right? Like you, you should never be going to showdown and winning with jacks. Um, nor do you just, I mean, and you're just not doing that well in the first place. Like, it's not even like you have good equity when you bet and get caught. Like, you're already not very likely to win the pot. And even the few hands that you're ahead of will probably bluff you out anyway. So the real question is, like, why do you want to bet jacks? I mean, can you? Yeah, like, I don't think you're going to lose a lot of money betting jacks. Like, it's probably a plus EV bet in the sense that, you know, you just, you do have the best hand often. Your opponent is going to fold fairly often. But, I mean, it's also a plus EV check. That's the thing. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I, I believe I have run this, and I, I don't have the solve in front of me, but like I did put these hands through a solver when I wrote the book. Um, so I mean, it, it was at least a mix. Um, it, it probably was a mix, in fact, because for the reasons that Keith says, um, this is a you know favorable flop for the button. It, you, you may, it may be possible to bet range. It's not going to be bad to bet any given hand. But the real reason why a solver is going to be reluctant to check jacks here is just that you don't really want to check good hands. You know, if you have king-queen, if you have a flush draw, if you have a good straight draw, if you have ace-king, pocket-queens, pocket-kings, pocket-threes, like all your strong hands, you mostly want to be just betting them on the flop. So the problem is then you end up having a fairly condensed checking range, and it's easy, like if you only check hands like jacks, your opponent can theoretically um, attack that by just like making big bets with a polarized range on the turn and river. Um, I think that your typical opponent is not going to do those things. Um, there is some material in the book specifying a little bit of a read on, on who the opponent is. And um, you know, I, I just think like when you're playing like a 2-5 live game, you're not really going to face, which, which is the context for this hand in the book, you know, you're just not going to face that kind of aggression from your average opponent. Like They're, they're going to let you um, get away with checking here and, uh, they're just not going to bluff you that much on, on the turn. Like, I think you can check back here and, and feel okay about either folding immediately to a turn bet or, you know, calling a turn bet and folding to a river bet. And, and you're not really going to get bluffed that often in that scenario. So I think that against an actual opponent, and this is like one of the key lessons of the book, even when you're in different in equilibrium, like even when a salver says you can bet or check this hand and, you know, it, it recommends doing each at a certain frequency, what that really means is um, the right play is just heavily dependent on your opponent's strategy. And so what I want what I want you know Keith and you listening to understand is that the the thing that gives you some incentive to bet here is just that Jax is all like it's not a very high value bet. It's just also not supposed to be a very high value check. And the reason it's not a very high value check is that you're supposed to face a, a fair amount of aggression after checking back the um the flop. I think that you're not going to face that level of aggression, and consequently you have more incentive to check the flop than what a solver believes. Um, so that that's my argument for why you should just play this as a pure check. I don't think it's going to show up as a pure bet in um, in, in in any solve that you were to run, unless you really had some some funky uh, ranges in there for, for for the players. But I think even if a solver shows it as a mix, I think that you want to resolve that mix in favor of checking. Like I think you can get away against your kind of average loose passive live opponent by just having a kind of face up condensed uh, checking range and rely on them not really putting a lot of pressure on that range. 
So thank you, Keith, for the question. Thank you, Keith, for uh, agreeing to the interview. And uh, I hope everyone will uh, enjoy listening to our interview with Keith Dunlap. Thank you, Keith, for for joining us, for taking the, the time for us, and for you know for, for writing into the show, for listening to the show, for for being a fan of the show. We appreciate all of those things. Yeah, I, uh, you're welcome. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, first and foremost. Uh, I just love you guys and love your your approach and uh, uh, the the podcast, uh, both podcasts actually. Um, yeah, and. Uh, and really excited, so excited uh, to be doing this. Um, but uh, the thing I wanted to say before we uh, got into the boring details uh, <laughs> is uh, it's kind of a public service announcement, and it's pretty straightforward. If there's anyone listening who uh, is having recurring back problems, that are kind of mysterious. If you um, uh, if you find like uh, you're you're getting a herniated disc from doing like simple motions, something like that, I encourage you strongly to get a blood test. Um, that's what happened to me for two years. I kept having these back problems, and then I started losing weight and being exhausted all the time. And that's when I went to my doctor and said, I think there's something else going on. And by that time, it was very late. And uh, when I was diagnosed with uh, the blood cancer, which I have, um, if it had been diagnosed earlier, I would um, have a higher quality of life. There's, I mean, it did, doesn't take away, uh, it, can't, it couldn't have stopped me from, it's not curable the cancer I have. Um, so, uh, but it would uh, uh, have allowed the doctors to intervene and in some of the side effects uh, sooner, which are really what plague me now. So uh, get a blood test if you have that problem, especially if you're in the service industry. So that last part's not obvious to me. Um, is that because uh, just the sort of like standing and, and walking so much as a contributing uh, risk factor? No. Yeah. No, it's a weird statistical uh, uh, set of uh, that uh, they don't know why, but uh, uh, multiple myeloma, which is the cancer I have, uh, has a higher incidence in um, the service industry than in any other uh, profession. So they don't know why. They don't. They they know very little about the cancer, about what causes it. But um, statistically, just statistically, people in the service industry seem to, for some reason, get it more than other people. I mean, this is maybe sort of a, a hell of a thing to start off with, I guess. But, um, you know, the, the, I'm sure you found uh, on your journey into poker, there's often that feeling of like, oh, if, if only I could go back in time and like 
fold pre-flop, you know, I, I could have avoided all this trouble or something. And, and, you know, obviously you've had to grapple with that in a much larger way of feeling like there was, even if it wasn't something that, you know, like, as you say, it wouldn't have enabled you to, to uh, cure the cancer, prevent the cancer entirely. But this, this feeling of, um, if only I had done something differently two years ago, my life could be, or however many years ago, my life could be better now. Um, I don't know, do you find like having been through that, uh, makes the the poker stuff seem more trivial of like oh why did i click call there on 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 the river i mean do, do you see a connection between those things uh yes um the the i think the for me the most interesting aspect of that is that uh i don't have regrets um i don't um i try to i try very hard to maintain a really good um and by really good, I don't mean morally positive, but I mean useful, practical uh, attitude towards things. Um, and that includes uh, my cancer. Um, I don't, I try not to um, uh, uh, feel sorry for myself or, or, or uh, feel special uh, in any way. Um, you know, there are millions and millions of people uh, in the world and in the United States, broken people with, you know, lonely, um, with that carry huge burdens. Like if, if, if you're in a room with 100 people, you could put your hand on the shoulder of, of, of any one of them. And if, the, and if they were willing to tell you the truth in that moment, um, almost every one of them would have something that they they have to deal with which is hard and um and so i don't think that having cancer uh makes me any different or special in any way and so the attitude i try and adopt is a very practical one um of uh you know uh showing up uh for my appointments taking the medicine as prescribed um uh, and uh, most importantly, um, being uh, positive—not not in a not in a magical thinking kind of way—I do not believe that my feeling uh, and thinking positive is going to help me uh, with my cancer in that way. But what it does is it makes the lives of everyone around me easier. My doctors, my family. Uh, the people I encounter on the street, um, by not um, anointing myself as, as either a victim or as a warrior battling cancer uh, that, you know, you, you know, that somehow gives me a special status, um, by not doing any of those things, I am uh, making it easier for my family and, and my doctors and the people I interact with um, to to uh, feel better and, and, and to be helpful, you know, allowing them to be helpful. Uh, I'm not defensive. I'm not scared. I'm not um, making it into a bigger thing than it is, nor diminishing it either. I want to be honest. I want to be practical. I want to be, um, I want to play the cards I'm dealt. And that's what gets me back to poker is that I find poker. I mean, there, there's, there's a hundred things I love about poker, um, but uh, one of the important ones is the mental game, the a that aspect of poker. 
and and how uh, how helpful it is, how um, uh, efficient it is to have a realistic attitude, uh, one that isn't filled with wishful thinking, and one that isn't filled with uh, negative thinking. Um, the the closer I can get to uh, a realistic appraisal of the situation I'm in uh, when the cards are dealt, the uh, without uh, an emotional reaction or or an egomaniacal reaction, the closer I am to making a good decision. And I think that's uh, you know that's such a a powerful, simple, you know, seemingly simple. Uh, a way of looking at the world, but elusive at the same time. And uh, uh, getting, I won't say, you know, look, having multiple myeloma sucks, right? There's there's a high degree of suckitude. Um, and, you know, like Monday was just a terrible day, right? But, but having said all that, I mean, I want to be honest about that. It's not, a, you know, I'm not happy about that. Um, but there's nothing I can do about that. Um, I need to live my life today as best as possible, and and in a very narrow sense, but in a but in a really important sense, uh, being diagnosed with multiple myeloma, <laughs> and this is paradoxical. I, I love paradox. Um, is I, I think the biggest danger of this interview actually is that we have three philosophy majors on the phone at once. But <laughs> I think the, Nate, Nate uh, actually was not an undergrad philosophy oh, major, although oh, he does I have a I PhD. Oh, okay. Well, uh, bad enough. Um, <laughs> the uh, but but in this weirdly narrow but profound way, getting cancer has been a great thing. It has really, <laughs> sorry. That's okay. It, it has enabled me to, to genuinely enjoy, to find joy in, in everything. In the worst parts and the best parts, I have been able, I have been, I've always been interested in that idea in, in a sort of a vicarious way, maybe. Um, you know, it's easy to get lazy in life. You know, things seem to just happen. Um, but when something like this happens, I think it's a great opportunity, I guess is what I'm saying. It was a great opportunity for me to like stop and say, well, how am I going to deal with this? And how am I going to deal with everything? And and that's that's a really good thing. The circumstances suck, but that's a good thing, and I'm really grateful for that. I am not. I am not bitter. I have. Zero bitterness about yeah, that, having cancer. that comes across. Even I'm mean, just in the couple minutes that we've talked. I think that's uh, very apparent. Andrew and I have access to something that listeners do not have access to, which is like a, a, a really striking and, and beautiful note that you wrote um, uh, to to us, where you just sort of describe your your current hobbies. I think your I think the listeners would benefit from um, some examples that you give there of things that you seem 
really uniquely or <laughs> able to appreciate. And, and I'm guessing some of those are things that, that you would consider yourself better able to appreciate now. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny, right? Um, and there is some truth to what I'm about to say. I'll, some of that is just uh, lifelong. Uh, and I've, I, I'm, I'm a lifelong insomniac. When I was in high school, I only needed about four hours of sleep a night. And it, and it, uh, and that leads you into strange corners of the universe, I think. Um, but, uh, yes, but, um, I was, uh, uh, they had to get me into what's called a, a, an autologous stem cell transplant very quickly because, uh, my cancer was, was, was reasonably well progressed. And so there wasn't, um, there wasn't any merit in delay. So, so, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and that's a, that autologous stem cell transplant is a, is a little bit of a misnomer because what it really is, it's just this brutal chemotherapy that uh, basically kills every cell in your bone marrow. And so it brings you really close to death, actually. And the, and the only reason you don't die is because they have previously harvested your stem cells. And then when you get to that almost zero point, then they give you your stem cells back. And then your stem cells repopulate your bone marrow because, uh, you know, your bone marrow is where your blood uh, is produced, where your blood cells are, are produced. So, uh, the which is great. And it went great. I You know, I, everyone was... Uh, was uh, terrifying me with stories about how awful it was. And it really, for me, I was very, very fortunate. It wasn't that bad. I, I, you know, I even, they even let me out of the hospital a week early because I was doing so well and wasn't, you know, but, 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 um, and in this time of pandemic, this is especially important. Well, this was pre pandemic, but it continues is that uh, my, your immune system is also, uh, dependent on your bone marrow. So uh, I pr basically had no immune system for about six months. I had to regenerate my immune system. I actually had to get all my childhood vaccinations again. So I had a period of six months to a year, uh, six months of absolute isolation and a year of sort of partial isolation uh, where I had to, you know, come up with stuff to do. Um, and it, it's, it's super clear to me that nobody else is going to make my life interesting, right? That's my responsibility. And um, so, uh, you know, I just went for it. Um, I was lucky. Uh, I have a list. Actually, I made a list because I thought you might ask something along those lines. And I was lucky. I'm lucky that I'm a writer and uh, I've always have been. Um, and, um, uh, I was in the early on, I was working on an autobiography, uh, like a memoir, uh, not to publish necessarily, but just for my daughter. I have a, uh, sorry. I have a, I have a 17 year old daughter who's, you know, just awesome. And, uh, and, uh, for a lot of other reasons, uh, I think good reasons, I've always sort of not, um, 
it's like, it's, I, I, I don't, my dad, my dad was this way too. I don't talk a lot about the past, my past. Um, uh, I just, I don't think it's that interesting, first of all. And then, um, and then you got to wonder about your motivation when you do, uh, you know, what do we talk about when we talk about our past? We're just, you know, me, I'm either kind of self aggrandizing or I'm, I don't know. Uh, so I just don't talk about my past a lot. So there's a lot she didn't know. So I was just kind of setting stuff down. Uh, and my wife is a writer also. She's actually a very, very good novelist who's published uh, five books. Um, and uh, I'll give her uh, a plug to Her name is Jenny Seiler. And she also has written novels under the pseudonym Alex Carr. And um, they're great uh, international uh, thrillers. Really fun, really, but, but also very smart. She's... She's published all over the world and translated all over the world. Um, uh, they're great books. But anyway, so I told my wife what I was doing. I was writing an autobiography, a memoir. And she was like, why are you doing that? Right? <laughs> she's like, you know, there's a billion of those um, in the world. She's very smart about writing. She said, you should write a novel. Right? You have this time. Why not do that? So I... I was like, okay. So uh, the next day, this idea just popped into my head for a book, and um, and uh, and I wrote it. It took me a frighteningly sh short period of time to write a full-length manuscript for this book, um, uh, and and I was able to get a good agent. Uh, it never sold. Uh, I think my my agent misunderstood the book somewhat. He tried to sell it as a uh, a Romana clef kind of along the lines of primary colors, which it wasn't at all because I'm not a Washington insider. It was really a a uh, a thriller, um, which was loosely based on our present or recently uh, recent past uh, reality. Um, and it was called the president's lawyer, and it um, it was about a, a you know I was I was an attorney, and it was about an attorney who had a midlife crisis and got sort of sucked into working for uh, the current president, who was a former New York City real estate tycoon, and um, all this other stuff involved, and it was really good. Um, and I wrote it really quickly and, and revised it and got it in good shape and sent it out, but uh, it never sold. So I might publish it myself at some point. But, uh, but that's only like, that was the, that was sort of the, the snowflake that became the snowball that became the avalanche. Um, I, uh, since I've been sick, I made a list of things I've written. Um, do you guys know, uh, uh, do you know the podcast uh, Philosophize This? No, I don't. I've heard the oh, name. Great. I don't think I've ever listened to it. It's great. It's it's this guy Stephen West, and he's an autodidact, but he's he's a savant. Um, it's he's such an interesting story. And actually, I had I had a similar experience with him. I have this practice, okay, uh, of uh, reaching out to um, and uh, 
and thanking people who are putting stuff out into the world. Uh, a lot of it is is poetry. I'll, I'll like if I read a poem I like, I'll track down the poet and send them a note and say I love this poem. I'm a poet. You know, you know. I, this is why, and I try to be specific about why I appreciate it and stuff. And uh, I do that as a practice. I think it's a it's a really good practice. And um, you know, because how often do do those people get a note like that, right? Like, like especially poets. You know, it's like, um, so... Even if you uh, hated it, just telling them that you read it would be a nice... Uh... Absolutely. Um, I, I published a book of poetry uh, in 2016, and um, a collection... Actually, I didn't publish it. A publisher published it. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, I, uh, I, I at around the same time I happened to hear a podcast where a publisher of poetry was talking about the unrealistic expectations of poets who publish their first book of poetry, and and he said, um, you know, uh, a, a poet will come in and think like, well, maybe I'll sell one thousand, two thousand copies of my book, and and the the publisher has to uh, pat him on the head and say. Uh, if you publish, if you sell, if you sell twenty-five copies of this book, that's a success. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So yeah, so any acknowledgement is good, um, right? So I reached out to S- Stephen West. We corresponded, um, and uh, and so I ended up writing an essay on free will, uh, uh, an essay on democracy, uh, and an and an essay on. Um, uh, uh, poetic aesthetics titled Mimesis or uh, Objective Correlation. Uh, I wrote an essay on zombies. I started a podcast, um, but I only did two episodes. Uh, there's just a, it was on poetry and there's just, that field is really flooded. Um, and I, and, and after the second podcast, I, I wasn't sure that I was actually contributing anything important to that. Um, uh, I've written an article. Uh, this is more germane. Um, uh, uh, one of the okay, so you are not the only people I've reached out to in the poker universe. Um, the f- actually no, actually he reached out to me. That's right. Uh, uh, Alec Torelli um, happened to see a post of mine, and he just immediately, immediately, without like hesitation, offered me a. Um, a free membership in conscious poker, which is his brand. And, um, and I, you know, and I, I, you know, I told I said, you know, you, look, you, you really don't have to do that. But he, he was really, he was really, um, insistent. And, um, and, and so, uh, so, so I have a relationship with, uh, Alec Torelli and, um, um, through my interest in the mental game of poker, and my interest in the mental game of life, I came up with this idea for an article. Um, and so I wrote this, I have written the first draft of this 30-page article uh, called uh, The Mental Game, How Poker Saved My Life. And But it's not really about me. It starts with me and ends with me, but it's it's more about Alec Torelli and his, his, his brand and interest in the uh, connection between um, uh, uh, what's, I don't know what the right word is, 
because he's not he's not a he's not a goofball. He's not he's a poker player. He's not someone who believes in fairy tales. It's not like a it's not not like the self help section uh, of your local bookstore. He really has a practical sort of mental uh, discipline attitude towards poker, which he thinks is really important. Which I agree at, with. And um, uh, so it's about that about him and that and then there's also uh 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 from a journalistic point of view i want to i want to sort of interrogate that as well so there's some uh discussion of uh authenticity and po in 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 that in sort of selling a a kind of a, a mental spiritual for lack of a better word approach um and uh so there there's some of that uh, uh, but I interviewed him extensively. He was, he was super co cooperative. Um, and so I have that, uh, which is on the shelf and I'm going to go back and revise that soon. Um, uh, Alex Fitzgerald, you know, I reached out to him and told him how much I appreciated his content. And, uh, and he and I now have a, uh, super, super friendly, um, email correspondence that's just it's okay i try not to bother him too much because you know you guys the same with you guys like he's you're all running a a, a business right and i i have run a business and i know how hard that is and time consuming um but nonetheless um he's been really awesome and i think he's such an interesting person too like i'd love to really uh find out his whole story you get glimpses of it and it's fascinating yeah we, we've had um, him on the show a couple of times and uh, uh, i don't feel like we ever got the full uh the full story and i don't it's not even i don't think it's even really a reluctance on his part i think there's just a lot to it yeah yeah i think that's right i think it's just amazing and um but i get his uh i get his daily uh newsletter uh from pokerheadrush.com also which i which i really like and then um and then uh and then Alvin uh, Lau, uh, who same same as Alec, uh, it was actually through a student of his who saw one of my posts, and um, uh, his student contacted me and said Alvin uh, wanted to to gift me uh, one of his courses, actually two of his courses, um, and I, I found that um, amazing. Uh, one of the nice uh, one of the great things about my poker journey is that I feel like, um, and one of my least favorite sayings is there are no coincidences. I actually believe there's only coincidences and, and, <laughs> and it's our mind that sort of turns those into something meaningful. But, um, but I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to turn coincidences, coincidences into meaning, but, um, you know, my, on my poker journey, uh, it, it feels like at every stage, right. Sort of like the right, kind of level of instruction has appeared um i did um i bought uh it the price was so good i bought a uh, uh from the ground up from run at once uh peter clark which was amazing and i also did uh, uh red chip poker i bought a pro membership and did the core and then um uh, that's how i that's how i stumbled on uh andrew's content and really loved it um but alvin lau uh, he's, I, I, I just like, I'm doing his course right now and, and it, it's just, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. And, and it, I, it's just, 
it's like uh, it has uh, it's just clicked with me. He's he he he. Uh, I guess he teaches like this um, high efficiency GTO simplifications, uh, which is kind of based on like a high sensitivity to hand categories and their distribution uh, through competing ranges. And it's just, I mean, I don't know why, but it just feels like, like the shizzle to me right now. I'm, I'm, I'm really engaged with it. And I feel like it's um, improved my game, which is not very good. I want to be clear about that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I am very new to all this. That, and that's one of the things I love about poker, right? Is that like poker is the uh, it's the I've I've never been so bad at anything in my life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like like it, it's the greatest rabbit hole I've ever encountered. Like I am just I'm just astounded at how much I have to learn and how much there is to learn and how complex it is and. And I feel like it's inexhaustible and interesting, and and uh, and I'm always I'll always have that uh, as long as I care to. Um, I'll always be dumbfounded in a given situation and not know what I'm doing and be able to study. I love the study aspect of poetry. Uh, sorry, of poker. I'm 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 a student. Um, uh, I have way too many degrees, and I just love that that aspect uh, when I play. I, I play as part of my mission to learn. I'm very, I always have something I'm working on when I'm playing. I uh, take that kind of approach. Um, yeah, so um, I went on a long tangent when I was talking about stuff. But, you know, let me, so I've written, I'm just going to count. I'm not going to go through them all. I've written four manuscripts uh one uh, the autobiography average life expectancy and three fictional manuscripts including one which is a a, a murder mystery set in ancient greece for the classicists in the room and then i published a chapbook of poetry um, and I'm shopping another uh, collection of poetry. So yeah, so that's and then there, and then movies and and uh, taking courses. I'm like I, I didn't mention this in my note, but I'm also uh, I mean I've I've taken a bunch of those. I love learning stuff. I've taken a bunch of those um, great courses, um, but I'm also uh, studying. Uh, uh, partly because of the poker, um, uh, I was really good at math. But uh, when I was in high school, but I kind of let it slide—not kind of—I let it slide. And um, so I'm rediscovering my joy for math. I'm taking um, on Khan Academy. I'm studying uh, trigonometry and probabilities. Um, I did a uh, course in. Uh, game theory. There's a great Yale open course that you can access on YouTube uh, in game theory, which is really interesting. Um, I I took a I I always wanted to, I knew how to read French a little bit from graduate school, but I always wanted to speak French. Um, so I I took a, 
uh, conversational French and and uh, stuff like that. Just you know, just like I said, just like engaging in stuff I'm interested in, not being afraid. Like, what do I have to lose? You know, I can I can do this stuff. Um, it's fun. It's interesting. Keeps me from boredom, which is, to me is the big enemy. Um, and uh, yeah. So you have put a lot of work into understanding your mind and, and life in a certain way. Uh, you have a very diverse and deep education, and now you're into poker with somewhat fresh eyes. What do poker players understand relatively well and, and badly compared to thinking people in the rest of the world? Like, what, what, what are we good at? What are we bad at? Um, well, uh, I'll preface this by saying I'm sure... And I and I mean I mean I'm sure I'm not saying this uh, facetiously at all. I am sure that there's a bunch of stuff that good poker players know and know how to implement, and the way they analyze poker and therefore the world, um, of which I am not yet aware. I I am really conscious of uh, you know the fog of poker. Like, um, I, I know what I do. I, I, I know there's things I don't know. I don't know. Um, and, and, but, uh, I don't want to dodge the question either. And, um, so in my brief acquaintance with poker, what I, what I suspect is that really good poker players well there's uh and i love this i love this um aspect uh, that your podcast with the finnish um uh uh what was he was uh, he was talking about the mental game um I, I guess he was he a psychologist um but uh where he was talking about how poker uh can train one to be uh have a better emotional equanimity. Yeah, I think like, UC Palamaki was his name. Yes. And yeah, that was yes. a very old interview. That's a that's quite the throwback. <laughs> yes. Yes, I I have gone through the archives a little bit and uh picked out ones that I thought looked interesting. Um and I th- I thought that was fascinating. This idea that um th- you know, one I think really good poker players to survive have to have a kind of emotional equanimity that uh, your average, uh, and I speak of myself, uh, your average grown-up infant, (laughs) large-sized infant, does not have. Um, You know, I tend to be uh, uh, reactive and impulsive and all these other things that I think a good poker player uh, can be trained not to be. And I find myself being, at least at the poker table, it's, 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 it's achievable. I, I'm, a, I'm much less impulsive and, and driven by uh, defensiveness and, and reactivity than I was uh, when I first started playing all that, you know, whatever it was, seven months ago. Um, but, uh, so that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing I think is this idea of, uh, randomness uh which is a 
such an interesting idea that, um, you know, there's things you can control and things you can't control. Um, I, and I think the two are related. You know, letting go of results um, is, for me at least, intimately connected to an understanding of that there are things I can control and things I can't control. I can, I can study and, uh, and learn and uh, make really, really good decisions and just lose. <laughs> just lose. Um, I just came out, I, hopefully, I'm knock on wood, I just came out of a downswing where I, was, I think I was playing really good poker generally. And um, it wasn't terrible, you know. Um, I was card dead. Uh, and I can prove that statistically. My uh, VPIP PFR went way down. And it was just because I was never getting cards. Um, and then when I got cards, um, you know, things didn't work out so much. I looked at um, February. I had a... Uh, uh, 14 hands where I don't play a lot. So, you know, my sample size is small. I've only played about 30,000 hands total so far, but I looked at February and there were, um, 14 hands where I lost more than 60 big blinds. So I looked at every one of them really carefully and only two of them, I would say I would change what I did. The other 12, 12 of the 14 were just where I got it in either with the nuts or not, well, obviously not the nuts, but close to the nuts or, or, uh, or uh, something that could easily become the nuts and had enough equity to make the call and lost. And I think that's, that's uh, an important part of poker um, is that uh, the understanding of randomness and distribution of randomness over a short period of time resulting in variance. Um, and I, and I think that, uh, that is, uh, something that most people don't think about that much, I imagine. Um, which is why I think a lot of people are easily, um, uh, led astray by anecdotal evidence, for example. Um, so much of, uh, deep thought, in the United States, at least, is uh, based on really flimsy anecdotal evidence, um, or I should say political thought, is based on um, uh, really uh, uh, weak arguments uh, where someone is generalizing from a, from a particular when if one understood better um, randomness and variance and all those other things, um, I think uh, one could interrogate that argument a little more closely. Was that too philosophical? philosophical. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, I was talking, but I had I had muted my mic. <laughs> um, I was going to no, say a, a decent it's, amount of it's, what I do as a um, as a poker coach. Like a lot of the people that I'm I'm working with are more like serious recreational players than than professional players, and so I, even if they've been playing poker for a long time, they haven't necessarily like put themselves through the intellectual ringer in this way what you're talking about of like really forcing themselves to to grapple with the truth of of variance and, and randomness and so a lot of what i'm and you, and you kind of have to walk a fine line between like 
the, the hand-holding versus the just sort of like bludgeoning them with the reality of it uh, you know because like, there's always that sort of like why me mentality like when they're on a bad run or something and it's just like why not you you know like poker doesn't care it'll <laughs> it'll do whatever and like probably what you're experiencing is not even actually that bad it's just um it has been my experience as well as like even after doing this for 15 years i mean i i think i am probably I mean, i've certainly grown in the areas that you're talking about but like i'm still like i still surprise myself with how much i'm not good at it you know like i still can get frustrated over the course of even like a day let alone like a week or a month of not even probably like especially abnormal run bad but you do and you still start to have those thoughts of like oh maybe you're just terrible at poker and you know likewise when when things are going well you start to think like oh maybe i'm just you know the best player ever yeah i i yeah, i heard someone say somewhere that the difference between the, the one thing that most professional poker players have in common, and, and I know a little bit about your story, so I know this isn't always strictly true, but the one thing that a lot of professional poker players have in common is that they ran good in the beginning. Mm. <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> it's just like, oh, hey, I'm good at this. <laughs> No, that, that is definitely true of me. I, I cashed the very first time I played the World Series of Poker main event, which at that time, you know, the, the buy-in for that represented probably like 25% of my net worth or something. So it was like, I definitely shouldn't have had 100% of myself. And then like cashing was a huge shot in the arm for my um, for my bankroll. And obviously it was like, I mean, it wasn't totally a coincidence that I cashed, but it was you know far from a foregone conclusion either. Right. And oh, 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 you just reminded me of something else really important. But before I say that, I, I just want to say that that fact does not diminish all the other things that a professional poker player has, which I don't have, right? Like the analytical skills and the, and the math skills and the, you know, all, all the other skills. But, but, but I think it's funny that, that there is some truth to that. Um, uh, but the thing you just reminded me of that uh, I think is also really important, um, and it gets to your question also, is uh, how important bankroll management is. I think, um, you know, uh, I made a, when I got interested in poker, um, I was very conscious of the fact that, that, you know, I may not be here in two years, right? And mostly through uh, uh, being both my wife and I being very cheap, <laughs> like we're, we're, we're cheap people. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't spend money on stuff that other people spend money on. You know, we have a certain amount of savings. Um, and I'm very conscious of the fact that that's not my money, right? That's my daughter's money. That's my wife's money. That, that all the money we've saved uh, needs to be preserved. And so, as I embarked on my poker journey, uh, I really uh, was very, uh, and I talked to my wife about this, and, and I, I have stuck to this. Uh, oh, discipline, that's another thing. That's another topic, how important that is. But um, uh, how, uh, so I, the only money, I mean, I had a bankroll, and I had a sufficient bankroll, um, set aside in my mind uh, and actually deposited half of it. Uh, but the the only 
I, I, I'm, I'm still playing on the same, my first $5 buy-in, right? Like I, I, I bought in on August 15th for $5 at an online poker site in a two cent, five cent, five NL game. And I have never had to, I've never gone below zero. That's, um, that's a great old school type story. That's the sort of story you would have read on a poker forum in 2008. So that's, that's great. <laughs> do, do you think that uh, cash games feel more like a tournament to you than they do to other people? Um, because as you've just discussed, your, your horizon for playing cash games might be shorter than um, other people's perceived horizons. No, no, not really, because I'm not, because I'm not in it for the money. Like, I, I really don't care. You know, like, I'm not trying to make money. I have no illusions about turning poker into a money-making venture for me, sure. which is kind of what I'm getting at, is that the, you know, uh, if, as long as I can keep playing at the level I'm playing and enjoying it. Now, I'm thinking of leveling up because I have, uh, I'm getting to the point where uh, my, my bankroll is my quote unquote bankroll, even though it's just the initial $5 investment is sufficient to justify leveling up. Um, and, and I, if I level up, it will only be because to, of the challenge, right? Like the, where I'm playing now, um, I sometimes feel like I'm, hiding out a little bit like it's it's pretty pretty easy it, you know uh i was uh joking with alec torelli about this recently you know just by just by um understanding a little bit of why how pre-flop ranges are constructed and having a little discipline and sticking to them and and you know understanding the gap theory and so that if I'm in middle position and there's two limpers ahead of me and I have kind of a meh hand and they're, uh, uh, they're both short stacked, like if I have a speculative hand, I might just toss it because I'm thinking about that stuff, right? Just by that, right? I'm a winning player right? <laughs> at my stakes, right? Like just that level of discipline and thought pretty much guarantees that unless I do a bunch of stupid stuff post-wop, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm kind of have a, have a leg up and enough to like, um, uh, to at least keep my head above water. Um, uh, but the bankroll management is is i think is something that i wasn't aware of before i started studying poker and i think that is so such a interesting concept for for not just poker but for life and that um you know don't spend money you can't lose um and uh i think that's that's um and I think that's an, that's like another public service announcement. I, I'm just, I, I think like, I think that almost every poker discussion should begin with that. Right? I just worry that, um, you know, there's people out there who are, are 
and, and I don't play tournaments um, uh, for that reason because it just seems to me that it is kind of the, the variance is so much higher in tournaments. And I think the bankroll has to be so much bigger to play tournaments um, that I don't even want to wade into those waters given my situation. Yeah, and I think the um, the not caring whether you make money, I mean, is really an important aspect of making money. <laughs> I think that one of the biggest ways that people get themselves into trouble, um, I think this is actually even more true in, in tournaments than it is in cash games, that people start to get the idea of like trying to win the tournament rather than trying to make good yeah. decisions. But I think the same is true in, in cash games as well. Like, you know, I'm sure you're aware, just... You, you, to the extent, and it's hard to avoid it entirely, but to the extent that you're thinking about whether you're up or down, you're already making a mistake. You know, like just just to even be aware of those things, it, it can only lead you in a bad direction. If if you have as even a secondary goal, try to have a winning session, try to win a pot. Uh, I always worry when people tell me that they're competitive because although I, I do think like most of the best poker players are competitive people, and that's why they've gotten as good as they have. I think that you have to frame your competitiveness in terms of one to make good decisions or play the game well because if you're going to perceive not winning the pot as losing as making you a loser then you're going to try too hard to win the pot rather than to make good decisions yeah i couldn't agree more i'm uh and i'm going to relate it to an aspect of life for or my life which is writing um it's it's yeah i I consider myself an extremely successful writer and no one's ever heard of me <laughs> <laughs> like, but I, but I enjoy it. Like I really enjoy it and I like, you know, I think about it and I try and do it really well. And, and um, I don't have any illusions about getting published and making millions of dollars because you know, if you want to make money, don't become a writer, <laughs> especially not a poet. You know, it's just like, it's not, you got, I think, I think that's true. And, and then, and then also I, I, I totally agree with, um, with the, um, I don't know what to call it. It's almost like a, a spiritual jujitsu of not caring that, um, uh, in my life, I have noticed that the, uh, the more I'm able to let go of the results, the more results I get period it's just been the case in my life that but it but you can't obviously you can't like trick the universe <laughs> there's no there is no magic but it just it just seems for me it seems to free me up and let me concentrate on what is important to concentrate on no matter what i'm doing if the less i care about the results and so i you know in poker i play better um and i'm not afraid you know, I'm not afraid to uh, lose my stack if I'm making the right decision, right? And I think that's really, that's that's extremely helpful. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, it comes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, focus on the things that are within your control. I mean, I, I agree that you're not tricking the universe, but I think you are, I don't know if it's tricking your own brain or just you know, <laughs> executing well or using your brain well or applying it to the tasks to which it can be, you know, usefully applied. But I think that is the, um, 
it's like to the extent that you're trying to win rather than trying to make good decisions, whether that be in poker or in anything else, you know, it's like the, the winning needs to follow the good decision making. It's not something that you can force to happen independently. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and what I would, I would, I guess what I was saying is that um, the more genuine my letting go of results right because it's easy it's easy to sort of say to yourself i'm letting go of results Mm -hmm. at least for me and still kind of be clinging to results (laughs) um i think that's that's that describes uh uh a lot of um uh of my life the but the more genuine that letting go is um, the more freedom I have to then concentrate on the stuff I can control. But, it, but all I was saying is that, it, is that for me, it has to be kind of genuine. I can't sort of pretend that I'm letting go of results when I'm secretly holding on to results. And that's hard. That's really hard to do. Yeah, and I think all of this is is aspirational, and I, I do try to put that as a sort of asterisk whenever I'm talking about these things. Is it, it's a lot easier to say academically, like this is how you should be thinking when you're playing poker. This is how you should be, but it's like it's easy to describe what tiltlessness looks like, and yes. it's a lot harder to actually do it. But I do think that the describing, um, I think Tommy Angelo calls this uh, optimistic ideals or something, idealistic extremes. He calls it. Um, yes. So like I think having a picture in your head of what would a truly tiltless poker, what would the sort of like optimal poker player brain mindset whatever look like you know you're not necessarily going to get there but having that picture in your head helps you to move closer uh i guess that's the uh the, the shadows on the cave wall yes yeah and and that's why it again this you know sounds weird but that's part of the awesomeness of having terminal cancer Right. Is that it's kind of genuine for me. It's like, you know, like Nate said, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not going to worry about this. I was thinking way back when, uh, you know, what what a uh, unique person you are in the sense of um, how many people when given, you know, X years to live would think like, what do I really want to do? Trigonometry. Yeah. Well, and you know, some of that is, uh, uh, you know, because my immuno system is compromised and, um, I haven't, I didn't, I don't think I've mentioned this, that one of the, um, uh, side effects of, uh, the, the delay in my diagnosis is that I have, uh, seven, uh, uh, compression fractures in my spine. Um, the cancer just weakens your spinal, your, your, your spine, uh, your discs. And so they fracture really easily. And, um, and as a result of that, uh, I have what's, uh, known as, uh, kyphosis, which is the curvature of the spine. I'm not hunchbacked. I, 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 I bend slightly to one side, but, um, but it's painful. It's extremely painful and it limits physical activity. Um, and, uh, there are things I do and, and, uh, I actually just, I've been, we've been, that's been our project for most of the, uh, three and a half years that I've lived with my diagnosis. And, and this is important too. I, 
and I've said this, and it's really true. I am so lucky. Um, I have done so well. I'm. I uh, if it weren't for COVID, we were going to have a party because my uh, uh, last August because um, I have defeated expectations. I am, you know, the prognosis uh, for at the point when I was diagnosed is diagnosed is generally three to five years. So I made it past the low end of that prognosis. Um, so, so I'm very, very, very fortunate in that. Um, but the physical uh, disability um, has, has uh, inspired me. I'll say uh, that's, that's the best word uh, has inspired me to, um, to uh, find other ways of of keeping myself occupied and 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 yes yes come on let's be honest I'm a super nerd <laughs> like I'm like my daughter my my poor seventeen year old daughter she's like you're you know I know ancient Greek and Latin you know <laughs> you know I mean come on <laughs> it's like you know uh, yeah you know it's like I'm I'm it's not it's not hard for me to be interested in um arcane uh uh useless information i love that stuff and i love i just love i love this world you know i love this world of stuff and 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 the opportunity and curious i'm curious and i'd love to uh and i you know and i love sharing it um i have uh uh and i want to say this about the poker community that that surprised me so much how much generosity, kindness, and patience I have encountered in the poker community? Because you know, through Alec, I'm I'm on the uh, the I'm in the conscious poker community. Um, through uh, Alvin Lau, I'm in the overnight monster community. Um, when I was doing. Uh, uh, from the ground up, I was in the Run at Once community when I was doing uh, core and looking at some of the other videos. I was in the uh, Redshift Poker community, and it's just astounding to me how kind people are, right? In the and how willing to be helpful in the poker community. Um, that's that's a that I'm deeply grateful for that, you know, as I'm grateful to you guys for uh, engaging with me and, and, and being willing to listen to me uh, go on and on about stuff. Do you, um, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like from, from what you described there, maybe playing live poker is just uh, not going to be in the cards for you at all. Have, have you thought about that? Is that important to you? It is. And I have. And that's funny, I had a conversation with my wife the other day, because my wife is, you know, she thinks I'm really good at poker, because <laughs> she loves me. Love is blind. <laughs> yes, it is. And I, expl I have explained to her time and time again why that's not true. But, you know, um, but she, you know, she, she was like, do you want to, do you want to actually play for money? You know, because the way I look at it now, I'm not playing for money, right. I'm playing for fun. And uh, I was like, no, no, um, I don't think so. I think uh, I think I'm happy studying and 
testing out things at my level. Like I said, I, I think I will level up at some point just to be a little more challenged. Um, but but I want to make sure I have plenty of back bankroll before I do that. Um, and but I do. I would like to play one time at a live poker table. Um, I, I'm nervous about it because I don't know any of the mechanics or any of that stuff, so I'm sure it will be really awkward. But I just, it's, yes, the, you know, and, and we're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to live long enough, and the pandemic is going to eventually evaporate, and, uh, and I'll have that opportunity, and I, and I look forward to that. I look forward to uh, sitting down at a table with uh, old man coffee and the rest and and just play a play you know play through my you know whatever two hundred dollar buy-in you know and we can disabuse you of your nation that the poker community is kind and patient <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> well you know there's money involved <laughs> I, I was so i think i told you guys this i was so interested in um that uh your podcast with nate silver and um also who is the oh gosh the guy i can't remember his name um sklansky oh, okay yeah yeah when uh, the sklansky interview um it's yeah i mean you'd have to be really 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 naive to think that there's not when there's that much money involved that there's not people trying to figure out a way to game the system, right? I mean, there just has to be, right? That's life. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I understand how, um, I think it's in the long-term best interests of casinos to uh, minimize and prevent that. But, um, but at the same time, I think uh, uh, as a rational human being um one has to be aware of that and and uh, uh and 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 then you now that gets into this whole other discussion which i think would be really interesting for someone to actually do an investigation an article on about the the connections between uh not to be a huge downer but between uh poker and uh, organized crime because I, I'm pretty sure that one of the original uh, charges against full tilt poker back in Black Friday was a money laundering charge, if I'm not mistaken, which is which is interesting, right? That's and it makes perfect sense. Um, you know, there's there's a long history of of stories like that in um, in the biggest game in town. Uh, there's a description of a huge stud game. Possibly one where they had to put chips on the floor because there was so much money on the table, and somebody says like that wasn't no poker game, that was a laundromat, <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, there's it, it would be very hard to get to the bot for for a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of people involved don't have any incentive to talk about it or are of dead or not. both. But um, I, I'd love to know. I'd certainly love to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an aspect of. I'm from New York. Right? I lived in New York 22 years. And um, so it, it's, it's very much part of my worldview, that level of corruption and the entitlement of money and organized crime. 
um, it was it's it was part of my, the the manuscript I wrote, the president's lawyer, the quote unquote fictional character of the president, who's the fictional character, and I'll say that again, fictional character, uh, the uh, part of the uh, backstory was how much of his real estate empire, uh, his wealth was generated through uh, the Russian mafia laundering money through buying condominiums uh, that he built. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, so that was, that was part of the uh, fulcrum of the story uh, was the main character sort of uncovering that and then uncovering another um, uh, mystery connected to that. And that's, you said that's always been a part of your upbringing. Um, yeah, I, I remember in third grade being assigned to write a short story and I, I wrote one about somebody torching his car for the insurance money or something like that. And <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know where, I mean, I definitely had family that did stuff in during prohibition, but I don't, I don't know like quite where that seeped into my consciousness. It sounds like it's been with you forever though. That's, <laughs> Yeah, I uh, my yeah when I my dad was a, a a physician, a radiologist, and he did a lot of uh, he testified a lot on the um, the capability, the physical capability of certain mobsters to stand trial, and uh, so there was more than one occasion when I had the FBI show up at my primary school and, and walk me home, so. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go in a minute, uh, but so I guess I'll, I, I want to at least take the opportunity to uh, thank you, Keith, for uh, for taking the time to to do this and share your, uh, you know, just I guess worldview and and you know things you've learned in your in your story and everything with us. And um, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to uh, to close on, or if you guys are inclined to keep going. Yeah, I, I have a 2.30, um, but yeah, I want to, well, first, apologize again for being late. Really inexcusable. Um, and, and thank you for your patience. And um, uh, no, thanks for sharing your story. And also, um, when you made me cry, you also, uh, or caused me to cry, you also kept on talking long enough for me to hide that fact until now. And so, you know, thanks for that. That was, uh, that was really nice of you. <laughs> no problem. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad, glad to be a service. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I just you know it's just again you know I just want to I just want to reiterate that I there's nothing special right about my situation. Right? That's the interesting thing is that we're all in the same position. We all have something hard in our lives that we deal with. If and and the more I think the more we can appreciate that. I did the uh, death penalty work in um, Virginia in law school, and uh, and uh, one, uh, a lot of it is what's known as mitigation, and 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 you go into the stories of these people who end up uh, on trial for having killed someone else, and and it's like the the actual horror of certain people's lives is unimaginable, um, and the more we can imagine that, I think the more we can be uh, the more I can sort of remind myself that the person I'm talking to 
is might be having a bad day, right? And that's not their fault, right? Uh, I, the more generous I can be um, in not in not being defensive and reactive, uh, I think uh, you know the better um, the better the world. Um, and and we have that opportunity. I, I have that opportunity all the time. I think is to uh, try and be conscious of that. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that, well, that's so something much. that live poker has prompted in me. I mean, online you can kind of ignore <laughs> your opponent's pain a lot of the time because it's not on display for you. And when you're playing live poker, you see both, I mean, the, the, the pain that the sort of short-term variants or results, just you know, the way that poker uh, needles at you, but you also see that it's connected to, to deeper pain in their lives also, just various insecurities that people have or um, when they do lash out at you, uh, whether it be because, you know, if, if it is like slowing down the game or um, or their perception of that or, uh, you know, bad beat of them catching a lucky card, bluffing that, you know, whatever it is. And you realize even if you are the, the proximate cause for their... Uh, their their outburst or whatever you know it's it's rarely ultimately about you that's right it's uh, i have a, a really good friend and advisor who always says even when it's about you it's not about you. right and <laughs> um, and uh and, and <laughs> the last thing i'll say is yeah, along those lines is i you know i just want to give phil helmuth a big hug <laughs> <laughs> i just want to wrap my arms around and say it's okay <laughs> You're really good. You're really good. Yeah. Your, your parents are proud of you. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Whatever it is. You never, you never, you never became an English professor, but your parents are proud of you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Well, I love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Keith. For, it, was, it was a privilege to speak I, to you. I, I told you I would just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and that and and that was for the best. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you guys. Take care. Okay. Yep, you too. Bye. Of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.